Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this evening. Uh, we'll turn in a little while to 1 John chapter 4, if you want to bookmark that. Um, but we'll, that'll be toward the end of our time together. So we are entering a new section in 1 Corinthians. Uh, as Paul moves down his checklist, I told you back in the beginning of this study that Paul has a number of items that uh, have been uh, brought to him from the Corinthians, from people within the Corinthian church, uh, he's, bring, he's been brought a couple of issues that uh, need to be addressed, that they're asking his advice on. Uh, he's also become aware of a few things that maybe they didn't ask him for advice on, but he's going to give them some advice on, right? Sometimes you ask your parents for advice. Sometimes your parents give you some unsolicited advice, right? Paul, uh, like a father to this church, he planted it. He stayed there for 18 months to build it. Uh, he continued to correspond uh, to this church, we believe that uh, he probably corresponded about four times to the Corinthian church. Two of those letters are in the Bible uh, to others that weren't part of Scripture. So there's a lot of correspondence back and forth between the people at Corinth and the Apostle Paul. Uh, so clearly, uh, Paul saw that there were some needs that needed to be addressed, but also they were a church that wanted to hear from God. Uh, and, and, you know, as a pastor, you know, my job as a, as a teacher, as a communicator, as a, as a preacher of the church um, is to, to try to get us as close to God and try to get us as closely in line with God's will as is possible. Uh, so that's why we stay in God's word and we unpack God's word and we dig into the truth that is found in God's word because that is, that is the goal for us as a church, to get closer to Jesus, to become more like Jesus. Uh, and, and sometimes it's obvious what we should do. Sometimes it's not so obvious what we should do yet. Um, that's why we open the Bible together week after week and in service after service. So Paul is moving down his checklist of items and issues. Uh, and chapter 8 brings us to a new section. Uh, and we'll be around the same length as the last section. Um, we, we spent a few weeks talking about morality, sexuality, um, overall life choices, and, and how to find your calling in the place that you are, are at, the condition that you're in. Uh, we spent several weeks, chapter 5, 6, 7, on that subject. Uh, so now we're moving into a new section, chapters 8 and 9, and they're going to focus on a subject that I think the church should talk way more about than it actually does, but probably it's going to be obvious as we get into this why it isn't something that anybody really talks about that much. So these chapters are going to revolve around the issue or around the idea of what it means to be right versus what it means to be righteous. So we're going to be talking about the, the difference in being right and having the right to do something and knowing what is right and feeling what is right and being right and, and having the right to do things based on that rightness of mind, the difference in being right and being righteous, which is something completely different. Now, we may think they're the same thing, that they're synonymous, that uh, being right, being righteous, there's, there's no difference. Uh, often we associate being right, uh, knowing what's right, doing what's right with being righteous. And, and it's not to say that being righteous doesn't include doing what's right, that if we're being righteous people, we should do the right thing. I think that's pretty pretty obvious. Uh, but we often associate those two things. And, 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 and it's not to say that being righteous doesn't include doing what's right. But my point is... Uh, uh, that we often define righteousness within or uh, based on our definition of what's right. We often limit the idea of righteousness to what we define as right. As in, if I'm right, everything I do 
must be righteous. That if I'm right about something, if I've got the right beliefs, the right ideas, the right worldview, then obviously everything I do as an extension of those right ideas and right beliefs, then clearly I'm being righteous. And I think we can understand that, that we think, well, if we're right, if we've got the right set of beliefs and we've got the right set of views, then we don't really have to worry about what we do because if we're right, we'll obviously do the right things and we'll do the righteous thing. If I'm right and if we're right, therefore, whatever we do and however we act is justified and is shielded by that. And thus, we're righteous. We often define righteousness as an extension of what we determine to be right, how we interpret what's right. But I want to kind of speak into that tonight and, 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 and tell us and, and tell you what I believe God's showing us in this text, that there's a reason that we cannot only contain, confine righteousness within this idea that it's based on what we think and, and how we believe is right. Because if being right all the time makes us righteous and we determine what is right, then we can do no wrong. But the thing is, sometimes what's right to me and what's right to you and what I think is right and what you think is right don't always agree. So if I always think I am right and I do things from that right perspective, then you do things from your right perspective. Eventually, we're going to clash. We're going to butt heads. Uh, eventually, we get by with doing whatever we want because if we're right, then whatever we do is righteous. And this is why, this is why all of us feel justified in doing the things that we do because if we're right, then we must be righteous. And this is why a lot of times the church does not talk, about, talk a lot about what it should be doing or what we should be doing. And we often focus on what is right and what we believe and what we should know. And we leave the righteousness to us to figure out. But the problem is that one is not as connected to the other as you may think. And if God is the only one that can judge us, who's going to tell us that we're wrong? And maybe that's why we often get in the messes that we're in. Now, this is how the Corinthians understood the idea of righteousness. So let me try to explain it to you another way. Uh, the, the Corinthians, they were new to the Christian faith, but they came from a religious background, which had its own idea of what was right and what was righteous. In the religion of the Corinthians, the pagan religion, they had a temple model. It was individuals and God. You went to God and you, uh, you, you, you went to God and decided what was right and, and you interpreted his law and you went and lived from that place. And, and because the temple model is so malleable and because laws are so flexible, religion trains people, and it trains me and you too, religion trains people to manipulate the truth in ways that makes us look right. And if we look right and if we are right, then we will always be right. And thus, we're righteous. That religion is all about bending things to always make us right. And if we're always right, of course, the actions that we let go from there should obviously be okay. But the idea that righteousness has only to do with our beliefs, the idea that righteousness has only to do with our being right and our doing right and how we relate to God without considering anybody else around us, it becomes problematic when you begin to understand what Christianity and what the church is all about and how it's unlike religion and it's not based on the temple model of the old religions. Because Christianity, as you know and as we know, is a relationship with God that prioritizes our relationships with others and informs how we behave in those relationships. 
And the church is not a one-on-one, me and God and nobody else. The church is a community. The church is a community in which relationships are at the core of it. And the health of the church is based on the health of those relationships. This is what we've learned so far in 1 Corinthians. And the Bible as a whole talks about a lot. How we relate to and how we treat and coexist with those around us is so crucial and is core to the Christian experience and really the human experience as a whole. And I say human experience because this goes back to the very beginning. God did not create us to be alone. He created us in community. He created us from the very beginning as a part of a community from the very first family. He didn't create one, he created two, and then he gave them a family. Now, the very beginning of our realization of life under him was connected to how we relate to and walk alongside the people around us. And if you read the book of Genesis, this is on every page because everything falls apart on earth when there's a disregard for how we relate to each other. What, what caused the problem in, 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 in Genesis chapter 3 in Eden? When Adam and Eve failed to communicate. And when they went on their own and did on their own. And of course both of them fell together. After that there's the fallout between Cain and Abel. There's the conflicts between Sarah and Abraham. Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Jacob and his wives, Jacob and his father-in-law, Joseph and his brothers, Judah and his family. It, it goes on and on. And on every page in Genesis, there's a conflict in the relationships of the people because that reflects a conflict and a breakdown in the relationship they had or didn't have with God. And this is why, this is why Christianity is tethered to the idea of church. Because the New Testament defines the church as a congregation and Christianity. It's not just me and you, me and God and you and God. It's us and God. We are born into, we are given a new birth into a family. We are born into the church. And the Bible defines the church as a community, as a congregation. The church is not a temple where we stand in line and present ourselves to God and receive atonement from God and go back to our corners. No, the church, well, have we learned in 1 Corinthians so far? The church is a body. Specifically, whose body is it? Christ's body, right? Haven't we heard that on every page in 1 Corinthians so far? The church is the body of Christ in which we dwell alongside of and rely on, are responsible for, and are directly affected by every member of the body. Do you hear that? The church is the body of Christ. Therefore, we dwell alongside other members. We are responsible for other members. We are affected by other members. We rely on other members, whether we realize it or not. Listen, doesn't it, isn't that how a body works? No matter how good of shape your arms are or your chest are in, no matter how much weight you can pick up with your upper body, if your legs don't work, that no matter how much weight you can carry with your arms, you're not going to get anywhere, right? That's how it works. That your body is dependent on the individual members of it. If your knees and feet can stand and walk for hours, but your eyes can't see to walk, what good does that ability to walk offer you? Right? If our eyes have 20-20 vision and our ears have perfect hearing, but our hands and feet are disabled, then we can't drive, we can't travel, we can't go anywhere, even if we can see and hear perfectly. 
So do you see how the church is different than a temple? How Christianity is different than religion? It's more than just about individuals. It's about a community. It's about a congregation. It's about a body. It's about his body, right? And this is gonna be very important as we get into this right versus righteous conversation. You see, when you get saved and when I get saved, when we get saved, we become part of Christ's body. We are joined to every member because again, my hand, you, you know the song from when you were a kid, my hand is connected to my arm, which is connected to my shoulders, right? All the bones are connected. All the joints are connected. All the muscles are connected, right? When you are joined to the body of Christ, you are joined to every member. Like it or not, want to or not, right? I'm joined to you and you're joined to me. We are part of the body. And this might be one of the most shocking statements you ever hear, but it's so true. How I treat each of you reflects my regard for him, right? How, each, how we treat each member of the body reflects how we regard the whole body. If I decide, hey, I have no regard for my foot anymore, it's going to affect my whole body, right? Oh, I'm just picking on the foot. I'm not picking on the body, right? I need my body, but I don't, I don't know why I would ever not want my foot, but right? Well, why, why would you take a part of your body away? It would affect your entire being. So how I treat each member of the body shows how I regard the whole body. Now, this makes so much sense that once you start talking about it, it's obvious why nobody wants to talk about it because it's so convicting, right? Christianity is a whole lot easier if it's just me and God, me and God, nobody else matters. But that's just not Christianity. That's religion. And once we see it, it's all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. So that, in a nutshell, is by why being righteous is not defined by being right, because when we define being right, we define it within the parameters of two parties, me and God. We define right based on, hey, this is what I know about God and what I believe about God. Right is defined by me and God and nobody else. But being righteous is defined within the parameters of three parties, us, God, and others. Now, before you say, uh, how can that be? Listen to how Paul in another place defines God's righteousness, Romans chapter three. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. As in, yes, what is right reflects or manifests God's righteousness, but that's, there, there, it's been manifested another way, a better way. Again, I didn't write this. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, although what's right plays a role in it, Paul says there's something bigger, there's something better going on. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So God's righteousness has been revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. And we become righteous by trusting in him, not by doing something, but by believing in what Jesus did and who Jesus is. And, and verse 25 says this, whom God put forth, Jesus, God put forth as a propitiation or atonement by his blood to be received by faith, what does this say? This was to show God's righteousness. So God's righteousness is not just revealed in what is right, even though that is very much important. God's righteousness was revealed 
in his forbearance or his patience, his divine patience towards sin in that he passed over sin. So what revealed God's righteousness? What defines God's righteousness? That Jesus did something for those that were unrighteous. That Jesus gave his life up for us all. So... God's righteousness is defined by and defined in the act of love demonstrated by Jesus. God defines righteousness as an attitude of the heart that informs the mind and then takes action. The law makes clear what's right and wrong and who is right. Jesus, who could have rightly condemned us all, chose to do something for us all. God says that is what righteousness looks like and thus the script for determining what is right and what the right thing to do was turned on its head. And suddenly, suddenly, and this is the New Testament ethic, this is the New Testament banner, suddenly what's right became an overflow of what's righteous. Now with all that in mind, we're going to read all of 1 Corinthians 8. And I think it's going to automatically make sense what Paul, why we talked about this in advance and what Paul is going to talk, about, talk to us about. He's going to make a very particular distinction and he's going to issue a declaration. And if any of this is still a bit iffy, I think it'll become a little bit more clear as we unpack it. But I wanted to present this to you up front because a lot of us have an idea about what is right and a lot of us have an idea about what is righteous. But Paul clarifies those things to us in this passage. Listen to God's word. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. We all have an idea of what is right and what we have the right to do. He says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Everybody in your Bible, if you highlight or underline, or if you don't do that, put a bookmark there or put a sticky note there. Knowledge puffs up as in knowledge is good for the individual. Good. We know something. Great. It makes me think I can do or I shouldn't do something. But he says, hey, there's something better that should drive us. There's something more important that should drive our decisions. Not disregarding knowledge, but that we should filter our knowledge through. Love edifies. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. As in, if we, did, if we base righteousness off what we know and what we think is right and what we have the right to do, Paul says, we really know nothing at all. And he's talking about Christianity there, what we know nothing about Christianity. Verse three is such a big verse. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So we think we're impressive by what we know and we think we're justified by what we know and therefore we can do based on what we know because if we're right, we'll do the right thing. But Paul says, if you really want to be known by God, it's based on the love that you have for God and how that love determines and directs your steps. Now in verse four through six, he's going to make, a de he's going to de define something and then he'll explain why he's talking about this. So Look at the text. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, and I'll explain all this in a minute. We know that an idol is nothing in this world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom all things are for, and for of whom are all things, and we for him and the one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom we live. So he just makes a proclamation of faith that we believe in one God and Jesus is his earthly revelation. 
However, there is not, it is not in everyone this knowledge. For some with consciousness of knowledge, for some with consciousness of the idol. Until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. But God does not commend us, but excuse me, but food does not commend us to God and for neither if we eat are we the better nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest someone somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. This right of yours becomes a stumbling block for those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who has this knowledge eating in an idol's name, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren, whoa, 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 who are you saying sinning? I mean, they're the ones that are wrong. When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their conscience, their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. It's a pretty big text that doesn't get enough attention. So let me try to explain it. So in ancient Greek and Roman culture, in the ancient Greek and Roman world, if you were to go down to the marketplace on any given day, uh, whether it was the butcher shop or the grocery store, uh, you would find, uh, much like you would find in our stores, you would find meat that was, uh, that was pr- taken from an animal, cleaned up, and packaged, whether in saran wrap or in cutting paper. I don't know what they used back then, but you know what we use in today's world. Um, so uh, you would find a package of meat that, uh, again, just like you would buy at the butcher shop or the grocery store. And just like today, back then, there would be these stickers on the meat that would uh, give you assurance that what you are buying is a good product, right? Now, if you go to the, to the grocery store, uh, you'll find some meat that says something like, hey, this is all natural with an asterisk because it's really not all natural, but let's just pretend it is. Uh, you'll find something that says grass-fed, right? Or, hey, this, this cow was locally raised. You'll find all these, these, these packages with these stickers, and, and every brand wants you to buy their brand based on their sticker. Otherwise, it's just all red meat, right? It looks like stuff that's not really appetizing. But if you were to go into a butcher shop or in a marketplace in the ancient world, you would find meat packaged like that, but there would be another very important sticker on the meat. And it would look something like this. Dedicated to almighty Zeus, or if you were in the Roman world, dedicated to the wonderful Jupiter. They both worshiped the same God, but he had a different name, Jupiter in Rome, Zeus in Greece. And that was just the world that was. That in the ancient world, that uh, unlike in Israel, that in Israel, when you sacrifice uh, an offering to God, the temple, the priests and the Levites would take the offering, they would burn some of the, the, the animal, animal, they would take part of the animal meat and they would package it up, send it home with you, and they would keep some of it to feed the temple uh, employees. But in the pagan world, uh, if you were to, you didn't have to go to the temple, you could sacrifice a, an animal to, in your backyard. But if you were to do that, you always dedicated it to Zeus because, hey, if you're, sacri- if you're spilling blood, it's going to be in the honor of one of the gods because you want to make sure the gods are looking down on you with a smile. So if you were to go to the marketplace 
almost every animal that was killed and packaged up to be sold for food, every cow, every goat, every pig, every animal that you get meat from, there would be a sticker on that animal that said, this was sacrificed in honor of or in dedication to Zeus or Jupiter or any one of the other hundreds of gods. Now, for some of the new converts from paganism to Christianity, it was very easy for them to disregard this. Um, those old gods aren't real. Uh, anything that the culture was still positioning as an act of worship to those old gods, it, it doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Zeus isn't real. Jupiter isn't real. So if I go and buy that package of meat, yeah, it says in honor of Zeus, but that doesn't mean anything to me. Zeus isn't real. It doesn't bother me or convict me or, or it doesn't hurt my conscience. I'll eat all the meat I want to eat whether it was sacrificed to Zeus or whomever else. But for a lot of new converts, it was hard for them to continue to partake in these old customs. Uh, and, and, and they thought, hey, if I eat this meat that was given in honor of Zeus, then hey, is that wrong of me to do? And, and yeah, I know Zeus isn't real, but it's kind of like I'm still worshiping Zeus and I really shouldn't be worshiping Zeus. And people would say, oh, don't worry about that. And this became a problem because when the Corinthians would gather to fellowship, and they fellowshiped a lot because they worshiped all day together, that no doubt somebody would always bring some meat in. And, and people began to whisper, where'd you get that meat? Well, I bought it from the butcher shop, and, and, and yeah, what kind of sticker was on that meat? Well, yeah, it was offered to Zeus, but listen, Zeus isn't real. What's the big deal? And there was a big internal squabble in the church. Well, hey, shouldn't we be sacrificed? Shouldn't we be killing our own cows and making sure that the meat isn't killed in honor of any god, but it's just killed to be killed, to be eaten? And there was this little bit of a tension. And again, this is silly to us. This is just, how, what's the big deal? But to them, this was a big deal. So it was such a big deal that Paul wrote a whole chapter about it. There were some that rolled their eyes and thought, what's the big deal? It's just meat. Zeus isn't real. Get over it. But there was others that were very concerned about this because it convicted them or it hurt their conscience. Some wanted to make sure the animals were raised differently and, and not bald and, and so forth. So this might seem trivial. And, and even to Paul, even Paul thought this was kind of silly. But he saw this as an opportunity to speak to the Corinthians about an issue concerning their rights as individuals versus their righteousness as members of the body of Christ. And that's why we're talking about this. So what Paul writes in this passage confronts the tension within all of us that maybe we didn't realize was there until tonight. And it's about this issue. It's regarding this issue. The rights I possess and can practice as a person. Hey, I'm a free individual. I can do what I want to and I can do based on what I feel is right or what I feel is wrong. I am my own person. You don't get to tell me what I should do, especially in our country, right? We are free, free, free people. I have a right and I can do whatever I want to do. And even as Christians, we are liberated by grace. There's nothing that we can't do, right? If we are free from the, free from the law, we, we, we people say that, right? So, hey, I can possess and practice whatever the rights that I have. But Paul leans into this and says, what about that righteousness you possess that was given to you? That I possess a righteousness that tells me what I should do as a Christian. Now, this is something I think that is beneficial to every church member, every Christian. 
in every generation, regardless of whether it's about meat or not. In verses four through six, Paul makes it clear what his opinion on this is. He says, if you wanna know what I think, hey, Zeus isn't real. That piece of meat that you bought with a sticker on it with his name on it, it's not a big deal. Zeus isn't a real God. Jupiter isn't a real God. Eat the meat and enjoy it. There's one God, his name is Jesus. He sacrificed himself for you. Nothing to worry about. Paul says, hey, that's my opinion. That's my belief. That's how I feel. But he bookends this passage with God's truth on the subject. And that's what matters. So look again at verse one through three. Concerning things offered to idols. Now you know what he's talking about. We know that we all have knowledge. We all have a right and we all have a right idea and we all know what we should or shouldn't do or we all maybe have different opinions about what we should or shouldn't do. We all have knowledge and he's he's talking to those that know that the meat is just meat. It's not anything to a God because those gods aren't real. He says, we all have knowledge. We know that we all, but we know that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love edifies. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So what is Paul saying in these first three verses? That what's right falls in line behind what's righteous. The right thing for you to do in any given situation is based on what reflects the righteousness of God. What reflects the love of God. Yes, you may think you have the right to do whatever you want to do. But first ask yourself the question, what is the righteous thing to do? How did we determine righteousness earlier? based on what Jesus did, based on how Jesus loved. If you want to flip over to 1 John 4, I'll read it to you if you don't turn there, but you know this passage very well. We'll go back to Corinthians in a minute. Listen to, how, listen to what John says in 1 John 4. And, and again, you've heard this before, but it's so, it's so powerful, even if you've heard it a hundred times. Beloved, verse 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So what is, what is John anchoring Christianity into? The love that we have based on the love that God has given. He who does not love does not know God for God is love. God is not law. Even though God has a very strong opinion on what is right and what is wrong. God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here's what he's saying. And we all know this, but again, I got to preach this because this is just the next chapter. God is not impressed with what we know because before we knew it, God knew it, right? How right we are or how we defend what we do based on what we consider to be right. God is impressed by, God recognizes us when we move in righteousness for others just like Jesus did for us. Is this saying that we don't care about truth or knowledge? No, but it's saying that we should care more about what builds up the body of Christ, asserting our ways and our wills first, asserting 
ourselves never leads to a place that impresses God or benefits somebody else. Look at it this way. If I believe something is right and you don't, what that reveals about you is that you're in a vulnerable place, right? If I'm right and you're wrong in a big issue, in a big area, that reveals to me you're on a very vulnerable place and how I handle the truth may send you in one of two directions. It may win you over or it may cause you to capsize over. So I've got to make sure what I do builds you up. I've got to make sure I do the loving thing and the righteous thing lest I lose you to that wrong thing. That's what Paul is saying in verse 7 through 12. Let me reread those to you. However... There is not in everyone this knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So he's saying that those that don't know what we know and those with the wrong beliefs that they may have, they're in a vulnerable, sensitive, fragile place. Paul's saying as Christians who know what is right, we must be careful lest we call someone else to stumble. Verse 11 and 12 are so big. Because your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Jesus. So listen, here's what Paul is saying. This is such a big deal. Such a big deal. If I'm right, yet I treat you the wrong way, no matter how right I am, I sin against God. Do you see that? If I'm right and I have the right to do whatever I'm doing, yet I treat you wrongly, What good is all that knowledge going to do me now if I'm sinning against you? Well, that's not fair to say I'm sinning against you because I'm doing what's right and you should know better or you should be more informed. Paul says, hey, 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 hey. Remember when you weren't informed? Listen, we deal with this in so many different ways and and I'm not going to get into these hot button issues, but you all know what the hot button issues are. In our world today, we are so hostile toward each other politically and socially and we we dealt with this for two years over masks and over vaccines, right? We were at each other's throats and we still are about other issues, right? Social issues, issues that we could easily send somebody over the wrong, in the wrong direction over. And we may not like how Paul comes down on this, but we need to hear it. He says, people to make a big deal about meat offered to idols, even though they're categorically wrong, there's no reason for them to be so sensitive. Paul says, if I, Paul says, if I belittle them, somebody that has the wrong belief, he says, I'm the one who sins. And again, you may think, well, that's not right. Paul's the one that says it. He says, if I'm the one, if I belittle or bully someone that's wrong, I'm the one who sins. So what's the bigger deal? Being right or being righteous? Winning against somebody or sinning against somebody? So we aim to be righteous. That's what God cares about. That's what love cares about. Look at what he says in verse 13. This is, you could preach 100 sermons just on this one verse. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again. Do you love somebody enough that you would say that? In regards to them, if food, if, if, if this issue that, you know what, not a big deal to me, but if I need to be a vegan for the rest of my life to keep you from stumbling, I'll do it. That's how much Paul loved people. And I'm not telling you what to do or what not to do, but Paul is. 
That's how much we should love people. Now, I know the political side of us says, I'm not going to sacrifice my rights for somebody else. They should get over it. They should know better. They better be ready to hear what I have to say about it. And, and again, again, yeah, that's fine. What he had the right to do and the liberty to do, Paul says, I would lay down this right if that's what love and righteousness demanded me do. Church, this is, this is the heart of the Christian message. If you want to know why I preach love so much, it's because this is the heart of the Christian message. Listen, I love being right, and I think I'm right about a lot of things. But I could, I, if, if, if all I cared about was being right, I would be the only person left in my life. As a pastor, as a, well, I wouldn't be a husband at that point. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have a family at that point, right? Because if all I cared about was being right and showing you I was right, nobody would want anything to do with me and I wouldn't blame them. The same thing applies to the church. This is what Jesus did for us, right? God in flesh had the right and liberty to do whatever he wanted to do, but what did he do for us? Remember that, that moment in John 13 when it says he, he, it dawned on him, he has all the power in the world. He was from God, he was going to God. And what did he do in that moment? He got up from the table, he took off his outer garment, he wrapped a servant's towel around his waist, and he washed their feet. And what's that a picture of? He got off his throne in glory, he put on the skin of a human, and he washed our feet in that he died for us that's the gospel right and what did he say in that meal when he revealed it to them what did he say as i have done for you you must do for one another and by this not by your knowledge not by all the things that you're right about or you're they're wrong about by this they'll know that you're mine if you love one another he had the right, he had the liberty, but what did he do? Jesus weighed his rights and his liberty. He deferred them in favor of love and righteousness. And the story of the church is that his followers chose love over liberty, righteousness over their rights, and they gave their lives away. Paul says, I would never touch meat again if it means showing someone the love of God. Whew. That's a big statement to make. I don't think I'm ready to make that statement. I, maybe you are. You're ahead of me. I, my attitude is to tell somebody just to get over it. Right? If you're offended by what I got to say, then hey, I'm sorry. See you later. But Paul says, if I had to quit eating meat, for the rest of my life, I would. We've got a pretty high bar to reach for, right? And did, did, did Paul say, I'm gonna change my beliefs? No. Did Paul say, I'm gonna denounce my faith? No. Did he say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, compromise my beliefs for you? No. I'm gonna quit doing this one silly little thing that might stand between me and you. Because I believe getting to your heart is more important than getting to my belly. Hear that? Getting to your heart is more important than stroking my own ego. That's so hard, isn't it? 
Have you ever said the right thing? Have you ever said something to somebody about how right you are just because you wanted to hear yourself talk? You knew what they were going to react. You knew, you knew they were going to get mad. You knew they were going to get upset, but you still said it, didn't you? Imagine being me. I have to bite my tongue all the time up here because I know what's the most important thing to do. And again, in all seriousness, what's most important for us we are a part of his body called to build up each member and every potential member. No, we don't compromise. No, we don't apologize for what is right. But we act in a way that reveals the love of God because even when we were wrong and he was right, what did Jesus do for us? He died for us. So I want to ask you a question. Because I think you want to get God's attention. I think you want to be known by God. Verse 3 of Acts, uh, of 1 Corinthians 8. If anyone knows God, he's known by God. I think you all want to be known by God. You want to be known by God? You want to get God's attention? Follow and adopt Jesus' approach. Jesus had all the knowledge in the world. But what is Jesus remembered by? How he loved people. He had all the knowledge in the world. He should have never sat in the same room with any of those sorry sinners that he called friends. Yet he did, didn't he? Because he loved them. He should have never hung on a cross for you and me, but he did, didn't he? Because he loved us. He had all the knowledge in the world, but he's remembered for a one-of-a-kind love. And what are we called to do? Go and do likewise. Church, don't let Satan deceive you and rob you of the true blessing of Christianity. I love being right. But what I should love more is being righteous. And being righteous runs straight, straight through the blood and the cross of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would humble me tonight because I don't know... <laughs> If I could, I, I would give up something that is just such a silly thing for somebody else. Because I should be able to do what I want to do. I should be able to be free and independent and I have my right and I have my liberty. And who are they to tell me I shouldn't do it? Who are they for me to dance around or worry about and try to be gracious to? Because shouldn't they just get over it? Father, I want my heart to look like Jesus's. When we get to heaven, our, heart, our minds are not gonna be judged for how much we know, but our hearts are going to be judged for how much we loved. No matter how much information we have in our minds and how much liberty and rights we defended, what we're gonna be judged by is how we loved and who we loved and what we were willing to give up to love them when it wasn't easy. All for the sake of building up the body of Christ. Lord, thank you for people that have loved me and have given me room when I didn't deserve it, that backed up a little bit when I should have been pushed off, that reached down for me when I should have been let go. When I was wrong and they were right, but they didn't rub it in my face, they loved me anyway and they gave me grace until I figured it out. Lord, thank you for that kind of love that I've been given by family and by people in this church and people from previous places because that's the kind of love that saved my soul. And that's the kind of love that can still change the world. Lord, if I've got to give it all up 
to keep loving. Give me the heart to do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.